If you've got a Bible, while they're all coming down here, you can open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12, and then go down to verse 20. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, and Miss Kinley is going to be our reader this morning. The eye cannot see, say to hand, I do not need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think that are less honorable we, f- we treat with special honor, and the parts that un- are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there sh- should not be no division in the body, that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of, each one of your part is of it. And God has placed in the church of first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. Father, thank you for this text of Scripture. Thank you for what it teaches us and shows us. Um, I pray today uh, that we would realize that there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Uh, that there's no such thing as, as isolation uh, in the Christian life. That we're called to be with our brothers and sisters, to be one body and to function together. So I pray today that for those of us who maybe feel insecure in our gifts, that they would be strengthened and encouraged today. Uh, For those of us who are uh, tempted to isolate and withdraw from the community and the body of believers, that we would repent of that today and realize our need for one another. Uh, And above all today, I pray that we can make much of Jesus. Because of him, we're all bound together as one in this room. It's not about our interests or income or our hobbies or any of those things. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about what he's done through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, and securing a way for us to be made right with you and placing us here in this body of believers. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we've been working our way through chapter 12 of, of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and if you remember, Paul's addressing the Christians in Corinth over the issue of, of spiritual gifts. Um, and and apparently what was going on in the church in Corinth is that there were people in the church uh, that were taking their gifts or those with the very obvious spiritual gifts, those that probably had more of a speaking or a teaching ministry, and they were being elevated over those who had more of the behind the scenes gifts or the quiet gifts. And so as a result, those people with these less obvious gifts were saying, well, God, since you didn't make me like them, since you didn't give me their gifts, since I wasn't as good as they are, then guess what? I'm just not going to function. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to come to church and, you know, the old joke, just sit in my blessed assurance and and that's it. I'm just going to kind of take up space. And Paul goes on to tell them in the first half of, of chapter 12 there that he says that's foolish thinking. 
And he uses the metaphor of the church as a body in in verse 8. And he says, your attitude's like a a foot saying, since I'm not a hand, I'm not going to work. Or an ear saying, since I'm not an eye, I just don't belong. And Paul's reminder to the church is that every part of the body of Christ is essential. That we need each other to function and work together if we are ever going to be all that God wants us to be right here in the local gathering in Spearman, Texas. And what we said last week is that we're not to exclude ourselves when Jesus has included us. That it's a gospel issue. That Jesus came to save sinners like us who were far off and he's brought us near. And because of that, we are to include ourselves. That if you're a believer, you've been made right with God because of Jesus. You've been placed inside a diverse body of believers and we are one body because of Jesus. We then take all of our gifts and abilities and we use those for the glory of God. And and what Paul kind of does in in those eight verses that we looked at last week is he talks to those of us who carry deep insecurity about our gifts and the way that God's wired us. And he tries to get us to understand that no matter how small or how insignificant we might think our gifts are, they are essential and vital to the life of the local church. That there are no small roles in the body of Christ. That every one of us in here who claim the name of Christ, we need one another. Now, one of the trends that that we continue to see the rise of in our culture, that sociologists have talked about, that theologians have talked about for years now, is the rise of isolation uh, and, and loneliness. Just a few headlines I read while I was studying this sermon. Surgeon General says there's a loneliness epidemic. Young people report more loneliness than the elderly. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. How social isolation is killing us. If you paid attention to any of the news this week, a a pastor committed suicide out in California. We continue to see the rise of, of pastors who are isolated and lonely because nobody wants to hang out with a pastor, right? Killing themselves because they're, they're, they're lonely. And what's sad about the whole thing is, is that we're more connected than any generation in the history of the world, but yet we are more lonelier than we've ever been. And see, the heart of, 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 of loneliness and I think the heart of isolation is honestly radical individualism, which has really become the functional status. Even for the most devoted believer in this room, radical individualism is rampant in all of our hearts. One theologian has has put it this way. He says that the shift in the Western mind from primarily religious to primarily secular has coincided with the rise of individualism as the primary way of viewing yourself. And this mindset resides in all churches. And this mindset of of individualism is is characterized by searching for our true selves in autonomy, right? Apart from a group, trying to find who we are on our own, right? It's it's the Disney movie mindset that, that if you just dig down deep in your heart, there's a princess in there, right? There's somebody who can just go out and do it and you don't need anybody. You can do it all on your own. You're the hero of your own story. It's characterized by the self-esteem movement and looking at what other people say and being built up and, and having everybody dote on you and care for you instead of finding your worth in Christ and His gospel. 
It's characterized by withdrawing and trying to be a lone ranger instead of finding community. Researchers at the University of uh, California, Los Angeles, have been using a tool lately called a functional MRI or an fMRI. And what they've been doing is trying to see how the human brain responds to the social world. And what they found as they've been using this tool is that human beings are wired to need other human beings. They found that the power of social isolation so adversely affects our brains that the region of the brain that's activated when we experience rejection or loneliness is the exact same region that fires when you step on one of your kid's Legos. It hurts. Right? The the Bible's correct. We're hardwired to need one another. And so how do do you fight the loneliness epidemic? Well, I think the first thing is that that we have to realize that the Christian life isn't about us, right? That you realize that you are not the point of the Bible, right? Now, this mindset is continuing to be taught in our churches. There there was recently a big clip, and I'm sure some of you saw it. uh, Maybe some of you shared it on Facebook. If you did, shame on you, right? Where, Where this really popular pastor shares the story of David and Goliath. Right, and he's up on the stage bouncing around, and he's like, the one thing David had that he didn't or didn't have that he needed was Goliath's sword. He needed that sword. And he goes on to basically say that the point of that story was that Goliath has your sword. You need to go out and conquer Goliath, beat Goliath, and you need to take that sword. Folks, that's not the point of that story. Okay? You realize that you as an individual. You're in that story, but you're not David. You're the Israelites up on the cliff, wet in your pants, scared to death of Goliath. David is pointing you to Jesus saying, you can't do it, but Jesus did. Jesus came and conquered the only giant that can really get you, and that is the giant of sin and death. You are not the point of the story. So one of the best ways that we can combat that is to realize we aren't the point of the Bible. Right? That the point of the Bible is that God would be glorified. It is the glory of God himself being lifted up so that all nations might see him and that all nations might worship him. See, if you begin digging in the Bible, you'll see that so much of the biblical language is based in community, not in individualism. We talked about this in our new members class this morning. Like, like think about uh, the Lord's Prayer. What, what, what does Jesus say? Our Father... Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. There's nothing in there about me, my, or I in any of that. In fact, if you look at Paul's writings, he uses the the phrase our Lord and Savior 53 times throughout all of his letters. He only uses the, 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 the phrase my Savior one time is that we're wired to need one another, that God must have been on to something when he created this thing called the church, which I think is a good setup for this section of Scripture because if last week Paul's addressing those who are insecure in their gifts and those who are withholding themselves because they say, well, my gift isn't as important as somebody else's, well, then this week he's addressing the individualist who thinks, why do I need other people? I mean, look at me, right? I'm beautiful. God gave me all kinds of gifts. I'm killing the game. I don't need other people. I can go out there and do this thing all by myself. And so what Paul's going to do is say, listen, the person that was insecure in their gifts, they're wrong. And the person that's so secure in their gifts, they don't think they need anybody, they're wrong as well. So look at verse 20. Paul says, as it is, there are many, many parts 
uh, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So, so as a reminder, we have a diversity of gifts in this room that when used for the glory of God in this local setting, make a unified whole. We're one in Christ because of what Jesus has done to save us and reconcile us to God. That our unity in here is not found because we're all from Spearman or that we're all like good middle class people or that we all have the same hobbies. Our unity is found in Jesus Christ in him alone, right? Which means that we can still be diverse, right? We can still be individuals. We can still have our own individual giftings, but those things don't pull us apart. Instead, they make us one and we're cohesive and we work together. And in verse 21, Paul's still using the language of the human body. He uses another image of an eye looking down at a hand and saying, well, I don't need you anymore, hand. Or, or a head looking down at his feet and going, well, I don't need you anymore, right? Which mine are huge. If they could have just been a little smaller, you know, it, anyways. It's an absurd metaphor. But, what hap- but that's what happens in the church when one group, right, declares war on another group, right? Nobody wins. Everyone loses because they're all a part of the same body. So if the eye says to the hand, I don't need you, the hand gets mad, goes all three stooges, right? Right, you know, and poke the eyes out. The other hand's not gonna help him out and block it, right? So you're just gonna poke your eye out and you're gonna hurt yourself. If the head says, I don't need the foot, the foot says, fine, I'm not gonna move. You try to take a step, you fall over, you hurt your head. Nobody's winning in that scenario. See, so when there's wars, when there's factions in the church, nobody's going to win. And see, what you had happening in Corinth is that you had some people saying, I'm not needed. And then you had others saying, I don't need anybody. And we don't know who they are. It could have been those with the very obvious gifts. It could have been the teachers, those who were on stage, maybe Sunday school teachers who were kind of out in the open and they were a little bit more flashy. A lot of scholars, a lot of scholars think it was the people that spoke in tongues were walking around going... Well, obviously you don't have my gift, you know, and just telling them, I don't need you anymore. And looking down on those people who couldn't speak in tongues, we're not really sure, but something along that line was happening. The point that Paul's making is that we don't get to look at different people in our church and say, I don't need you, or you're unneeded, or your gifts aren't as good as mine. I think a great example, and I've seen this play out in Baptist churches for years, I saw it when I was a student, is when young people in the church begin to look down on the elderly and begin to say, well, we don't need you anymore, right? We're young, we're hip, we're happening, we're with it. There's no place for you in the church anymore. You see that happen all the time. And it's not true. We need them because they're anchored and they're grounded. Most of them have forgotten more Bible than you have memorized. I need them as a pastor because I know if I ever say anything that's a little off base, I've got about a few of these little ladies that are going to catch me after church and be like, uh, Pastor, listen, can we talk about this? And I, I, it's not true. That's not right. But you see those things happen. I think sometimes what we do is, is I made this comment last week, but we look at the students too and we go, well, they're the church of the future. No, they are the church right now. They are part of this body. They have a place in this body. They have a role to play. I'm so thankful that Kinley got up and read scripture this morning. She's a part of this body. She's one of you. She, she can serve. She has a role to play. These students have a role to play. 
See, every part of the body of Christ is important. So if you're in here and you're thinking, well, maybe I'm not smart or I'm not really successful. I don't know my Bible as well as others or all I do is help on Wednesday night or maybe I just come in and I sweep up on Wednesday night or all I do is rock babies in the nursery or clean tables after church or cook food. I'm not important. Well, well then verse 22 is, is for you. Look what, look what Paul says. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. See, we tend to think that the people on the stage with the flashy ministries or those with the public gifts, those are the ones that we need to stand in awe of. And Paul says that's not the case. He goes, if you think of the human body, it's the organs that none of us see that are actually keeping you alive. It's that heart that's pumping. It's your liver. It's your kidneys. It's your lungs. It's those things that may not be as big as an arm or a hand or a leg, but they're inside of you and they're indispensable. They're vital. Folks, Joe and I are just a couple of morons. You know that, right? And we are just two guys in the long line of pastors that have come through this church. And guess what? If we ever leave, this church has been around for 100 years. It'll probably be around for a lot longer because it's not all about us. This church will be fine because we don't make the church go. All we do is throw some vision out there and do our best to teach the Bible. It's the indispensable part. It's those of you behind the scenes that make this thing go. See, listen, there are people in this congregation whose ministries are vital and they're indispensable and they go largely unnoticed every week, all right? And she told me not to do it. I'm doing it anyways. I thought of Robbie Reed this week. She's going to have a whole bunch of young moms in this Sunday school class this Wednesday night. She's done this for almost five years now. And she gives moms a safe face to come and just say, being a mom is hard, right? I've seen that job. I don't want it. It is hard. And it's a vital ministry because she tells them, you're seen. I love you. I care for you. She's taking seriously the book of Titus where it says that she's to teach the younger women. And a lot of you don't even know she does it. She's vital. She's indispensable. There's others of you in here that you're just quiet encouragers of others. You're encouragers of Joe and I, maybe of Sunday school teachers. There's others of you who are just servant-hearted doers. I don't even have to tell you to do anything. You just show up and you do it. You see a need and you feel it. We have generous givers. We have prayer warriors who are praying for us, who are praying for this church. Listen to me. You are vital. Our culture sadly privileges the extrovert, don't they? The upfront personality, the big personality. But if you look what Paul says, that's really not how the church is supposed to work. Look at verse 23. He says, And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So, so he's saying two things in verse 23. He says there's certain parts of the body that, that we keep covered up for a reason, right? Um, the, the parts that we think less honorable, all right? So, so let's think dudes with big stomachs and small t-shirts, right? You know that guy hanging out the bottom, right? You, you, you get the t-shirt, you cover it up, right? Let's think nasty yellow toenails, right? Nobody needs to see that. Cover them up, Right? I don't wear flip-flops. There's a reason. My feet are ugly. You don't need to see that, right? There's just some things that we don't show, right? You want to see my scab? Want to see my scar? No, we don't want to see those things. That's gross. Cover it up. 
Those are the moderate parts of the body that, that we take time to cover those things up so other people don't see them. Then Paul says there's our unpresentable parts. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist. He's talking about private parts. I figured that was the least offensive thing to say, okay? Right? That's how I talk to my kids, all right? So you can email me. It's fine. We make sure those things are covered up. We buy clothing, some of us really expensive clothing, to make sure those things are covered up. But listen, Paul's saying in taking the time to cover the modest parts up, these private parts up, we are showing greater honor to those parts to make sure that they stay covered up. So Paul says, there's those of you in here who are quietly serving. You're like the parts that we spend time covering up, okay? You may not be seen, but you're worthy of honor. We as a church should make sure those people who are quietly serving in the background that nobody ever hears or sees, that they're encouraged, that they're lifted up, that they're told how vital they are to our congregation. Because the reality is, is those of us with public ministries, we're going to be praised because we're out in front, right? We're going to take a lot of bullets too because we're out in front, right? They're going to get a lot of criticism and a lot of neat nicks who just want to throw stuff. But those who serve quietly behind the scenes, Paul says, they are the ones who are deserving of greater honor. There was this little man when, when I was in Plains, Texas. His name was, was Robert Morgan. And Robert Morgan was just was an old farmer. And uh, I loved Robert because he always wore the same thing, white shirt and overalls. Every time you saw him, white shirt and overalls. And I promise you, you wouldn't have looked at Robert and been like, hey, man, this guy's like super vital to the church because he was just very quiet. White shirt and overalls every Sunday, all the time. But every May, Robert would come in my office. He'd sit across from me and he'd be like, how many kids need to go to church camp? And I kid you not, he would pay for, I mean, a slew of kids to go to camp. And I'll never forget when he died at his funeral, there was this moment where somebody was talking on the stage and they were eulogizing him and they were talking about how much he loved Jesus because he heard the gospel at church camp, that God saved him at church camp. And so he made that his mission to make sure as many kids as possible go to camp. And the man asked, hey, how many of you went to camp and were saved because Mr. Morgan saw to it that you went to camp? You wouldn't believe the people that stood up in that room. Nobody would have ever seen that coming. That's what Paul's talking about. Is that nobody saw him. He was covered up. He was modest in how he dressed and how he lived. But yet he made an unbelievable impact on the kingdom because of the way he lived his life. And if you think about it, what Paul's saying right there, in kind of a crazy way, right, in the way he's talking about body parts, he's really showing us a gospel pattern. That Christ himself didn't come to this earth as a mighty conquering hero. He came as a carpenter's boy who became a wandering rabbi, who was rejected by most, crucified by the Romans. And it's the upside down, back to front pattern of the gospel that by giving his life, Jesus saves the whole world. And Paul says, I'm so taken by that message that Paul himself seeks to live that out in his own life. Right? Paul didn't seek to live his status out as an elite Pharisee. Remember his resume? Right? That he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he was educated. He had the best teachers. And what does Paul say about all of that? He says it's rubbish. If you want to follow out the Greek, he says it's dung compared to knowing Christ. Paul was rejected. Paul was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was a self-supported preacher that reached the world for Jesus. So brothers and sisters, hear me on this. It's not the guy up front that's the most important. 
I know that's how the world sees things. But the kingdom says it's the parts that are covered up and unseen that require special honor because they're vital and indispensable to what God wants to do in the local church. And at the very end of verse 24, Paul corrects those who think they're so gifted that they don't need others. And he does it the exact same way that he did with those who are insecure. Look what he says. He says, which are more presentable parts do not require. Then at the end, he says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. God's composed the body. God's the one that's put this eclectic group of people together in this room. And for that reason, since God has sovereignly assigned each and every one of us our gifts, there's not one of us in here is too important or too unimportant. No Christian is unnecessary or unneeded. See, God's plan is that all the members of the body of Christ would exercise special care for one another. So, eyes and ears need hands and feet. Every part needs every other part for the health and the good functioning of the church. We're all in this together, right? And he drives it home. Look at verse 26. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So if one of us is hurting, we all hurt. If one of us is honored, we're all rejoicing with that person, okay? Look at it this way. You ever thrown your back out? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, I do it about three times a year. It's lovely. It's wonderful, right? And when your back's out, what happens? The rest of your body hurts because the back's out. Like you throw that one little, little, you know, catch back here. And then, I mean, you're walking like this. Your arms hurt. Everything hurts. It's miserable. And what Paul's saying is that's exactly how we are supposed to be right here in the local church. So when someone is suffering, guess what? We suffer with them. When, when a young mom miscarries, we feel that. When somebody dies and a family is grieving, we feel that. When a child is sick, we feel that. When somebody is sick, we feel that. When someone's spouse leaves them, we feel that. When someone's child wanders away from the faith, we feel that. And we should feel it deeply, all of us. But likewise, listen, when someone's honored, right? Here's the hard part, people. We rejoice when somebody gets the raise that you didn't get. You rejoice. When somebody gets a new house, you rejoice. When someone's kid is honored and yours isn't, you rejoice. See, I think what happens to us a whole lot of times, though, is that we look at one another with jealousy I'm afraid that sometimes when somebody's honored, like especially you see it with kids, they're like, oh, well, yeah, their kid got honored. Let me tell you, their mom was doing all the work for them. No wonder they got honored, right? And we begin to say things like that, and we backbite, and we hurt, and we cut down. Sometimes when people suffer, our thought isn't to grieve with them. Instead, our thought a lot of times is, thank God it's not my family. Yeah. See, if we would live out this one verse right here in our community, you talk about a game changer. You talk about changing everything. Because people would really start to go, what in the world is going on at First Baptist Church that this group of people that really probably shouldn't get along because right, they're, they're all just different and they're eclectic and they're all over the place, but yet they love one another so much that they're grieving with one another when there's a death or when somebody's sick or suffering or hurt or they're rejoicing with one another over little small things. What is going on there? 
What is going on that they all come together and use their gifts, whether big or small, to tell others about Jesus? There doesn't seem to be any petty jealousy or infighting. They just seem to love one another. Holy cow, all of a sudden, we are set apart and distinct from the rest of the community, right? See, that's a countercultural picture of human society right there. Get on Twitter this afternoon. Even if you don't have an account, go sign up for one. You'll see that we live in a society that's just a cesspool, that we just want to fight and pull one another down. We want to argue that nobody wants to come together and mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. The church is supposed to be that. And Paul sums it up, I think, really well in verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ and you are individually members of it. I get geeked out about this part. Because listen, our society everywhere is looking for the balance of where you can be both of these things, right? Where, where you can be a part of a community, but that you can still be your own individual self. That's what our society is looking for like crazy right now. People want to find that. They want to be themselves, but yet they want to belong. And they're looking everywhere for it and they can't find it. So they're looking for a place where the group doesn't suppress the individual, but where the individual supports and upholds the group. And what Paul's telling you, the only place that you're ever going to find that is in the church of Jesus Christ. You can't find it anywhere else. You, you can't find it in a country. You can't find it in a form of government or a political ideology. I mean, why do you think all these young kids think socialism so cool? Like they want to be a part of a community so bad they can't stand it, but they forget that that community then will suppress their individuality. To where the opposite's true is to where we live in such an individual society, right, in our capitalistic form, that we'd forgotten what it means to be a part of a community. And what Paul's saying is that the church is where both of these things can come together. The church isn't a place where we all dress the same, right? Denim skirts for the ladies and suits and ties for the men and Kool-Aid on the Lord's Supper table. That's a cult. That's not a church, right? That's not the church. The church is like a stew. You ever thought about that? So in a stew, right, a good stew, it's almost stew weather. I can't wait. You, you got carrots and you got green beans and you got corn and you got meat and you got potatoes and you throw them all in the stew. And once they're in the stew, they're a part of the stew. But then if you think about it, there's still carrots, and there's still corn, and there's still green beans, and there's still potatoes, and there's still meat, right? That's what the church is like. That you come to church, we're not a melting pot that sort of melts into one general culture. No, we're a stew. We maintain our distinctives, but then we just sort of simmer together to give each other a little bit better flavor. It's a diversity that's not divided. And Paul says you can't find that anywhere else. You can only find it in the church. So friends, stop trying to look for those things anywhere outside of these walls. Paul says, you find it right here. It's in the church. That's where you see it being lived out. I love that. And then in verse 28, he, he kind of finishes it up. He says, and God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So, so I'm not going to break down all of this right now. We're going to get to all that in chapter 14, okay? Chapter 14 is where it's going to get real fun for some of you, okay? But in short, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there's an order in the body of Christ. So first, there are apostles, those who have seen Jesus and who were passing on his teaching. 
prophets who helped explain these truths to people, then teachers, or a lot of scholars believe that, that what Paul's saying there is he's using the word of pastor teachers right there, right? And so what Paul's telling us is this, and we've got to contextualize this, all right? Paul's writing to the Corinthian culture that doesn't have a closed canon of scripture. So what he wants you to know now is this, the office of apostle is closed, right? The requirements to be an apostle no longer exist. None of you have seen the risen Lord Jesus face to face, all right? So when the last apostle died, that office closed. The office of prophet is closed, right? And I'll tell you why it's closed. We have all the scriptures right here. Everything that God wants to reveal to you, he's already revealed to you in the pages of his word, right? So anytime somebody tells you, well, I've got a new revelation from God, no, you don't. God has already given you everything he intends to give you right here. And it ultimately rests on his son, Jesus Christ, okay? Now, if you want to say a prophet is one that foretells the scriptures, I've got no problem with that. But anybody that's going to foretell anything, that office is closed, right? The office of pastor teacher, it's still in use. So you have pastors to stand up here and to preach the word and to teach the scriptures and explain those things to you. You have teachers, whether they're Sunday school teachers or Bible study teachers or small group teachers who open the scriptures and they explain them, they teach them to you. And Paul says, not everybody's an apostle. Not everybody's a prophet. Not everyone's a teacher. Not all work miracles or heal peoples or speak in tongues or, or even interpret tongues. And again, I'll explain these gifts, tongues and miracles. That's all for chapter 14, okay? Paul's point, though, is once again the same. Your gifts aren't mine and mine aren't yours. We all have gifts and we're all to use our gifts here in the body of Christ. That's what he says. That's why Paul says to desire the higher gifts. Now, this does not mean that you were to go out and to chase after gifts, right? You're not to go out there and be like, well, I'm going to be a faith healer, right? So I'm going to go take a class on how I'm going to heal people and how I can push people over and how to speak in tongues. That's not what you're supposed to do. That's not what Paul means. That would be you earning something. And Paul's already made it clear that the gifts are given without merit, that God sovereignly decides who gets the gifts. You've already been given your gifts, right? What Paul means when he says to desire the higher gifts is that you are to go out and you were to see where the body of Christ needs help, you were then to take your gifts and to use them in that area for the glory of God. That's what he means, right? So, so I've been talking about this for several weeks, but as soon as church is over, I'm going to put a nice piece of paper right up here and says Children's Church on the top of it. Starting in October, we have 44 lessons. There's no reason why we shouldn't have 44 people sign up to help teach Children's Church. It's a need. And Paul's saying, you use your gifts to fill a role. You know whose name's at the very top of that list? Mine. You know who's underneath it? He doesn't know it yet, Joe's. Because we are to use our gifts to fill a role. And that's what we're going to do. That's what Paul means right there. And the reason we do all of this is for the unity of the body. And ultimately, check this out, look at me. Because of love. That's why Paul ends this section by saying, but let me show you still a greater way. And I ain't going to take Joe's thunder, but then he's going to roll right into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? What's that chapter? Love chapter. And guess what? It has nothing to do with your marriage. I love that. I mean, it does. You should love your spouse. But ultimately, it's in the context of the body of Christ that Paul's going to say that love is patient, that love is kind, that love does not envy, that it does not boast. That within the body of Christ, we're to exhibit love for one another. Why? Because we're all members. We all belong to one another. And we care for one another. 
So maybe you're in here, and maybe you say, well, I've been struggling with pride. Maybe you live your life saying, I don't need you. Maybe you're not involved in some form of small group, whether it's a Sunday school class or, or a home group, and you've just created this little island for yourself. Hear me out. If you're a Christian, don't do that to yourself. Please don't. Find a small group. Grab a brother or sister and say, hey, could we begin to meet? Can I, can I have a time where we could read the Bible together and pray and pour our hearts out to one another? Would you repent and acknowledge that every member of the body needs one another? And so by you trying to live on your island, you're harming the body by removing yourself from a group of people who need you. An eye is not an adequate body. A hand is not an adequate body. A nose is not an adequate body. An ear is not an adequate body. We need the whole. Brothers and sisters, you need other brothers and sisters around you. And then finally, I'll just say this. Some of you may still be dealing with just deep insecurity that you don't belong or that your gifts don't matter. Maybe you're in the background and, and maybe you're like, well, nobody sees me. Nobody knows what I do. Nobody even, even acknowledges what I do. Could you hear the Apostle Paul encouraging you this morning? You belong. You belong. Your work has value. Your work has merit that you are essential to the life of this church. Be encouraged and continue to serve and continue to love because you are indispensable to what God wants to do at First Baptist Church Spearman. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for all you've given us. I thank you for this text of Scripture. I thank you for this opportunity to look at, at spiritual gifts and to see that, that really it's, it's all about us becoming one body. That it's all about us using our gifts for your glory and for the kingdom of God. So I just pray today for those of us who tend to be Lone Ranger Christians that you would convict us and that we would repent uh, of trying to do it alone and that we would find a meaningful place to belong, that we would get out of our isolation and we would surround ourselves with brothers and sisters who can care for us and love us. I continue to pray for my brothers and sisters who struggle with just insecurity of thinking that maybe they don't belong or maybe their gifts um, aren't as important as others and that you would let them see how important and vital they are to the work that you are doing here at First Baptist Church Spearman. Forgive us where we don't encourage these people enough, and I pray that we repent of that and that we, we, we do better. Above all, I thank you for Jesus, that this whole local church thing would not be possible if it were not for him and what he's done in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, and taking a people who were far off, reconciling to God and making them one with the Lord and one with one another. May we value and honor the local church. May we find our worth in who you say we are, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.